Well, we're at a point in the text. We looked at initially how the Israelites, under the leadership of Joshua, had made it into the promised land. And now, all they needed to do was take the land that was promised to them by God. But we see them beginning to settle. They compromised. Our first point we talked about was success. And initially, it looks like they have great success under the leadership of Judah. God had ordained that the tribe of Judah would be the people who would lead the way. And we saw some, somewhat of uh, a little success in the first portion of the book of Judges. Last week, you'll remember, we talked about how now they sort of began to settle. They didn't take God in His complete promises, but sort of compromised. We'll pick up from that point and, and look at today how they ultimately surrendered. Surrendered to the enemy. And the application for us is that some of us in our Christian walk, I'm afraid, have, have forgotten the early successes. Maybe we've sort of settled, compromised. One foot in, one foot out type thing. Maybe it's at the point where some of you have just sort of given up. You've sort of surrendered and the enemy is having great victory in your life. I want to encourage us all today that if, if God said it, we can believe it is true. And there's no reason for you and I to settle for second best. And by the way, anything outside of God's promises is second best, no matter how good it looks. So I want to take time to encourage you this morning uh, with this truth. Notice in the text, chapter 1. Last week we talked about how um, uh, you'll notice verses basically, uh, say 20, let's look at around verse 21. You start to see that compromise. The children of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites. And you'll go on down through the text and you get into to 27 and you'll see Manasseh did not drive out. Uh, we noted in, in, in on down verse 28 that... Um, they did not drive out. And Ephraim did not drive out, verse 27. Zebulun did not drive out, nor did Asher drive out the inhabitants. Yet this is what they were told to do. You see, what happens is when we, when we compromise, we don't fulfill what God has called us to do. And that's what's happening to the people here. Verses 21 through 36 uh, we see that. Let me read to you what Matthew Henry said in regards to this portion of that uh, lack of fulfilling what God had called them to do. He says the people of Israel were very careless of their duty. They were very careless of their duty and interest, bowing to slothfulness, cowardice. They would not be at the pains to complete their conquests. It was also bowing to their covetousness. 
They were willing to let the Canaanites live among them, that they might uh, make advantage of them. They had the dread, and they did not have the dread and detestation of idolatry they ought to have had. The same unbelief that kept their fathers 40 years out of Canaan kept them now out of the full possession of it. Distrust of the power and promise of God deprived them of advantages and brought them into troubles. Thus, many a believer who begins well is hindered. His graces languish. His lusts revive. Satan piles him with suitable temptations. The world recovers its hold. He brings guilt into his conscience, anguish into his heart, discredit on his character, and reproach on the gospel. Though he may have sharp rebukes and be so recovered that he does not perish, yet he will have deeply to lament his folly through his remaining days and upon his dying bed to mourn over the opportunities of glorifying God within us or glorifying God and serving the church he has lost. We can have no fellowship with the enemies of God within us or around us, but to our hurt. Therefore, our only wisdom is to maintain unceasing war against them. Matthew Henry. You know, it's like keeping a garden. Uh, um, I don't see Holt. Holt's not here. He's speaking today for Gideon's. And, but, uh, you know, it's like, it's like keeping a garden. One of the things you've got to do, anybody that does a little gardening, you know this. You've got to keep the weeds out. Right? Now, what happens if you decide to compromise and just let the weeds grow? You're going to let the, the, the crop grow in the midst of those weeds. You allow the weeds to remain, it's going to choke out the fruit on the good plants. The Israelites settled. And we notice in, in today's text, they, in verse 34, let's pick up our reading there. And the Amorites forced the children of Dan into the mountains. For they would not allow them to come down to the valley. And the Amorites were determined to dwell in Mount Horez, in Ajalon, and in Shalbim. Yet, when the strength of the house of Joseph became greater, they were put under tribute. Now the boundary of the Amorites was from ascent of Akrabim from Selah and upward. And I'll stop there. Again, Here's the case. In this text, you've got nine of the the twelve tribes of Israel mentioned, and you see how they were not fulfilling that promise. They were not taking God at His word. And now we're at the point of of Dan being driven out. And, and, And the Amorites, by the way, those Amorites are probably one of the most powerful of the Canaanite peoples. But the land was Dan's. He had his right portion of property that had been given to him. It was his. He did not take what was rightfully his. We know why. Notice in chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. Then the angel of the Lord came up from Gilgal to Bacham and said, I led you up from Egypt. And brought you to the land of which I swore to your fathers, and I said, I will never break my covenant with you. 
And you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall tear down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. Why have you done this? Therefore I also said, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall be thorns in your side, and their gods shall be a snare to you. So it was when the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the children of Israel that the people lifted up their voices and wept. Then they called the name of that place Bacham, and they sacrificed there to the Lord. And when Joshua had dismissed the people, the children of Israel went each to his own inheritance to possess the land. Now that verse 6, we we really, I I should not have read that. That that sort of pretexts the following passages. Um, But let's focus on the verses 1 through 5. Here you have the angel of the Lord. That phrase, angel of the Lord, many of you know this, is what we call a theophany. A theophany is, is a, an appearance of God. It's a pre-incarnate uh, appearing of Christ. How do I know that? How do I know that's Jesus, pre-incarnate Jesus? We'll look at a couple of claims that are made. He says, the angel of the Lord came up from Gilgal and said, I led you up from Egypt. There's claim here to deity. He's the one who led up Israel from from Egypt. He's also referred to as the the angel of covenant. Turn with me to Exodus uh, chapter 23. Everybody flip over to Exodus. Exodus chapter 23 verse 20 says this. Behold, I send an angel before you to keep you in the way and to bring you into the place where I have prepared. Beware of him and obey his voice. Do not provoke him, for he will not pardon your transgression, for my name is in him. Joshua 5, 14 also shows us this. You notice over in Joshua, chapter 5, verse 14. We can back it up. You'll remember this prior to the taking of Jericho. And it came to pass when Joshua was was by Jericho that he lifted his eyes and looked. And behold, a man stood opposite him with his sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversary? Verse 14. So he said, No, but as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? You see, one of the things, Jesus Christ, when you see Him in comparison to other angels mentioned in Scripture, other angels refuse worship. Go through the Scriptures. When you see an angel, they refuse worship. But Jesus Christ never refuses worship. He accepts it. Spurgeon says this, he says, Not in such a body as God Uh, Not in such a body as God had prepared for him when he took upon himself the form of a servant, but in such a form and fashion as seemed most congruous to his divine majesty and to the circumstances of those he visited. This angel of the divine covenant whom we delight in came and spoke unto this people. 
So yeah, I'm sure it's not... He wouldn't have maybe necessarily appeared as He appeared as Christ in the earthly ministry. But He had a form of such that, 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 that was um, appropriate for that time. But it's a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ. The angel of the Lord. Notice what the angel of the Lord is saying. First off, notice where he came from. His coming is from Gilgal. Now what's significant about that? Where was Gilgal? That is the place they first settled when they came into the land. This was a place of victory. This was a place of celebration. This was a place they marked uh, uh, honoring the Lord. So the fact that he is coming from Gilgal has a peculiar significance. You see, it was there that the Israelites made a solemn dedication of themselves to God. Turn with me again, Joshua. Joshua chapter 4. Notice what happened. They'd come into the area, they'd come into the land, and here's what they say. And it came to pass, chapter 4, verse 1 of Joshua, and it came to pass when all the people had completely crossed over the Jordan, that the Lord spoke to Joshua, saying, Take for yourselves twelve men from the people, one man from every tribe, and command them, saying, Take for yourself twelve stones from here, out of the midst of the Jordan, from the place where the priests feet stood firm, you shall carry them over with you and leave them in the lodging place where you judged, where you lodged tonight. Then Joshua called the twelve men whom he had appointed from the children of Israel, one man from every tribe. And Joshua said to them, Cross over before the ark of the Lord your God into the midst of the Jordan, and each one of you take up a stone on his shoulder according to the number of the tribes of the children of Israel that this may be a sign among you when your children ask in time to come. Key point, when your children ask in time to come, saying, what do these stones mean to you? Then you shall answer them that the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord. When it crossed over the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off, and these stones shall be for a memorial to the children of Israel forever. And the children of Israel did so, just as Joshua commanded, and took up twelve stones from the midst of the Jordan, as the Lord had spoken to Joshua, according to the number of the tribes of the children of Israel, and carried them over with them to the place where they lodged, and laid them down there. Then Joshua set up twelve stones in the midst of the Jordan, in the place where the feet of the priests who bore the ark of the covenant stood, and they are there to this day. Gilgal meant something to them. The fact that the angel of the Lord's coming from Gilgal should have been a reminder. It should have pierced their conscience. It should have convicted them. You'll find in our next study, as we progress in the text, one of the problems is that generation dies out. And then the other generations arose that did not know the things the Lord had done. Why? Why? Because they did not honor what was said there in that text in Joshua. You will tell these to your children forever. They neglected to do that. So, we find ourselves, the angel of the Lord coming to Gilgal to Bacham and says, 
I led you from Egypt. He said, I led you from Egypt and I brought you. So not only did he lead his people, he brought them. You know what? God's leading you. The Spirit of God leads you. He leads you through His Word. He's told you some things. He's, he's given you truth. He brought them to the land which He swore to their fathers. And He said, I will never break my covenant. Notice verse 2. And you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall tear down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. Why have you done this? We see God's faithfulness. I mean, look at these first two texts. You you see so much about who God is. You see His power. You see the deity. You see... His faithfulness. He's the one who did it. Christian, do you know God's already won the victories? So why are you living in defeat? Notice verse 3, he says... Therefore, I also said, you see, hold on. He's given them one promise. He said, look, the land's yours. Take it. It's yours. I've already done this. But, notice this. Therefore, I also said, I also said, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall be, a, they shall be thorns in your side, and their God shall be a snare to you. See, God's willing to do His part. question is, are you going to be obedient? Because guess what? There are other things God has promised for those who refuse to listen. Those who refuse to heed. For those who want to harden their heart to the promises, to the truth, to the love that God has bestowed, to the grace He's given, to the victory He wants you to have and experience in your life. If you choose to harden your heart, God has promises for you too. And that's what He's telling us here. Notice, uh, look over in Exodus. Everybody turn to Exodus. Exodus 34. Exodus 34, look in in, um, verse 11. It says this, Observe what I command you this day. Behold, I'm driving out from before you the Amorites and the Canaanites and the Hittite and the Perizzite and the Hivite and the Jebusite. Take heed to yourself, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land where you're going. He said, take heed, take heed to yourself. 
Be careful. Beware. Be warned. Lest it be a snare in your midst. But you shall destroy their altars. He didn't say partner with them. He didn't say, oh, just make them, make them your uh, forced labor. He said, destroy their altars, break their sacred pillars, and cut down their wooden images. For you shall worship no other God. For the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. Do you know your God's a jealous God? You see, some of us Christians, we've not torn down the altars. We've not destroyed the pillars in our life. Some of you have idols in your life. Some of you, instead of heeding what God has said, you've allowed the snare of the world to entrap you. We, we have these things and we don't see it. We, we read this text and we expect some, some uh, uh, wooden statue. And we call that the idol. Oh, well, I don't have wooden statues. I'm not going home and I don't have a little statue that I'm bowing down to. Bowing down to so this doesn't apply to me. Our battle's not flesh and blood. It's spiritual, it's, it's, it's spiritual wickedness. You see, there's an unseen realm. There's an unseen realm that we're battling, gang. There is, there is a force that is at work in the world. The Bible warns us that in latter days, many would apart from the faith, falling heed to seducing spirits. You know what the seducing spirits are? They're, they're what's motivating, they're what's driving this world system. It's the pop culture. It's the, it's the, the drive behind making sports the center of your life. It's the motivation that idolizes your family. Your marriage. Those are idols. And those are idols that need to be cut down in our Christian walk. Please don't go home and strike down your wife. (laughs) That's not what I'm talking about. Wives, please don't hit your husband with a frying pan this evening, okay? This is not what I'm talking about. But in our heart... In our heart, we elevate these things. You say, oh, well, I love Jesus... That's fine. I hear your lips. I see your mouth moving. But I can't hear the words of your lifestyle. I can say it all day long. I can talk about Jesus. I can go to church every time the doors are open. I can go to a Christian school. I can do my devotions daily. I can read the Bible every day through the year. Two times. But you know what? That is... Meaningless if it's not resulting in life. Your actions speak louder than words. This is my idol. Fill in the blank. Christian, what, what, what Canaanite influences have us? 
What Canaanite influences have gripped the church? Where have we compromised in the land that God has promised us? You see, we're a holy nation. You're a royal priesthood. You're an ambassador for the kingdom of God. So, what is, what is the evidence? Is it success? The victories? Is it settling? One foot in the church and one foot in the world. Or maybe I'm just at the place of surrender to the world. There's no Christian pulse at all in your life. Oh, you have a shell of a Christian. There's no life. That branch that's dead is no good but to be cut off, according to John 15. So, where are we at? Are we like Dan and allowed the the enemy to force us out? Instead of heeding the voice of God as we should. You know, it's interesting. This in, in Judges, um, you, you see not only where the angel of the Lord came from Gilgal, but it also says that he met them in, in Bacham. Um, notice what happens here. Verse 4, So it was when the angel of the Lord spoke those words to all the children of Israel that the people lifted up their voices and wept. Then they called the name of that place Bacham. You see, the name of Bacham, it means weepers. The weepers. The people knew. Here they see the angel of the Lord, Christ incarnate, the, pre, the pre-incarnate of Christ coming, and, and, and they know He's coming from Gilgal, and that was a place where, oh man, victory was ours, and now here we are. And we did exactly the opposite of what God told us to do. All these idols in our life and all this compromise and all the the people that we disobeyed the voice of God. God tells them, you have disobeyed the voice of God. Christian, when you choose to live contradicting to the word of God, you are disobeying the voice of God. Tear down the altar of your heart. Tear down the pride. Lay down the the things, those sins that are besetting you. You're being ensnared by them. And no soldier of Christ should be entangled with the affairs of this world. That's why we're not running this race in victory. That's why the the turmoil and and the thing... Now look, as a Christian, you're going to have trials. You're going to have tribulation. But is there a pulse? That's why Paul says, examine yourself to see if you're in the faith. Faith without works is dead. If there's not fruit on the vine, you better inspect to make sure the branch is connected to the vine. Victory in Christ What does that look like? 
Church, what does it look like if we really were the people that Christ called us to be? What does that church look like? Let me give you a glimpse of a man who got it. If you haven't read Radical yet, we're we're trying to get some more copies. If you've read Radical, there are people on the list that want to get it. If you want to get the copy, put your name on the list, and when one comes available, we'll try and get you one. The church needs to read this. Let me read you a portion in here of a man who got it. Listen to this. We cannot overestimate the effect of believers who begin living out the claims of the gospel together in churches. This is the pastor and this is the author of this book writing this portion. He says, I received the following critical letter recently from a man in our church. I have included it here in its entirety to illustrate what happens when people who do not know Christ see the gospel at work in the church. In other words, they begin to see it actually tangibly lived out. Listen to what he says. This is what the man wrote to the pastor. Dear Dr. Platt and the church at Brook Hills, I assume, based upon what others have said about you and the faith family at Brook Hills, that you are accustomed to receiving complimentary letters. I hope that you will indulge me as I write to you from a different perspective. My letter could be considered more of a complaint or a warning. It is intended to enlighten you as to how your, quote, radical actions and teachings related to the Word have been destroying my life and probably the lives of others like me. Well, I can tell you, as a pastor, if I got this letter, I'm going, uh-oh, what I say now? Let me explain. I was raised unchurched. By loving parents who were perfectly content with their lives, the worldly perspective I grew up with allowed me to see the hypocrisy in the lives of the few church-going families to which I have been exposed. Thus, as I grew into a worldly man, I found myself on the path to the American dream. This path, as far as I could see, did not go through or even near a church. I went to college and then grad school, married a kind and beautiful woman, and got a decent, respectable job, which allowed me to ultimately buy a house, or at least make payments on a mortgage, and make maximum contributions to a 401k. My wife and I eventually had a family with two beautiful daughters and a couple of dogs. I was living the middle-class version of the American dream. I was a kind, decent family man who was grounded in the realities of the world. I was perfectly content to devote myself to working hard to provide the financial resources my family would need. 401k, retirement plan, 529 college savings plan, a general savings account, and a vacation savings account. I also worked to provide the necessities of life, such as a flat screen TV. My charitable giving could be described as minimal at best. 
I love my family and love spending time with them. But I was constantly distracted by the financial realities and needs of our lives. I looked to my balance statements for a sense of security. Like many good worldly men devoted to getting ahead in this world, I would find moments of joy when the quarterly 401k statement showed a profit. I also experienced pronounced periods of stress, disappointment, and anger when the 401k dropped or when we had to take money out of savings to pay the bills. However, I accepted these ups and downs as the realities of life, and overall, we were doing okay. Then one day my wife, who I thought loved me, told me that she would like to raise our daughters in a church and requested that we start visiting local churches. Up to this point in my life, I had done a good job of avoiding churches and the hypocritical Christians who attend them. I had always felt uncomfortable around faith-professing Christians because I lacked Bible knowledge and assumed they would look down on me. Now, in order to make my wife happy, I was going to have to attend a church and interact with those people on their turf. I reluctantly agreed and added church to my list of dreaded weekend chores. Initially, our trial run at visiting churches proved relatively painless. The people were nice, but the watered-down version of the word they were serving had little impact and left me with no desire for more. My wife, who was also unimpressed by these experiences, suggested we try Brook Hills because she had heard good things about this church. Well, if attending a regular church was bad, I was sure attending a mega church would be worse. However, as usual, my wife convinced me, and we attended your church for the first time last fall. That day was the start of a process in which you and your faith family have been progressively destroying my life in this world. The word you served up that day was strong and pure, not like the watered-down versions I had received in the past. It had an immediate impact on me. And like the most addictive drugs, left me wanting more. We started to attend fairly regularly on Sundays, but soon that was not enough to satisfy my growing need for more of this word. I started buying CDs of previous sermons so I could get my fix on the way to and from work each day. I started to interact more with members of this faith family who were not only consuming the Word, but also appeared to be living it as well. This only fueled my desire for more. Soon we were attending a small group on Sundays in addition to the service and were occasionally attending a Wednesday night Bible study. You and this faith family seemed all too happy to encourage and support my habit. As I got deeper and deeper into this addiction, a side effect known as faith began to grow inside of me. As my faith grew, I felt a greater need for fellowship with others suffering with this same faith. All along, I was gradually losing my grip on the realities of this world, which had been my foundation. And I came to Christ. I cannot believe what the Word and this growing faith have done to my life over the past year. 
I used to avoid church altogether. Now, we attend the worship services on Sunday and have joined a small group, which meets for three to five hours each week at a neighbor's house. I attend a class on how to study the Bible. I used to avoid Christians who profess their faith, and now I'm becoming one. I find myself seeking opportunities to share the word and discuss my growing faith with others. I stopped saving for the flat screen TV, which is just as well since I don't have much time for TV anymore. I've reduced my 401k contributions and stopped uh, looking at the quarterly statements. I've gone from trying to save as much money as I could to trying to find ways to give some of our savings away in addition to regular contributions to the church and various faith-based charities devoted to the poor and other ministries. Strangely enough, this brings me greater joy than I ever experienced with a quarterly 401k statement showing a profit. What is wrong with me? It's lunacy. What have you done to me? The worldly man I was a year ago would not recognize the man I am becoming. I was a man believing in the realities of this world, living the American dream, saving up riches for a comfortable future, and looking for security in a strong bottom line. Now I believe in, pray to, and seek after a relationship with a God I cannot see. I have found salvation in Christ whom I cannot see. I long for eternity in an unseen future creation. I now look for security in my faith. All of this would have sounded like foolishness to the man I was a year ago. However, the man I was a year ago and the worldly life I knew are being destroyed. This has obviously had an impact on me, but it has also impacted my family, whom I pray with daily. I wanted you in the faith family at Brook Hills to be aware of the role you have played in destroying my worldly life. I also feel the need to warn you that if you persist in teaching and living out the Word as you are doing currently, then you will likely have a similar impact on the worldly lives of others like me. I hope you realize that you may have to live with the knowledge of your actions and their effect on the lives of others for all eternity. I will be there in eternity to remind you of what you have done. Sincerely, your brother in Christ. David Platt writes, I praise God for what happens when the church comes together to display a radical gospel. Indeed, the church is God's plan for multiplying the gospel to all nations and where Christians lock arms with one another in communities of faith, pursuing a radical Savior, the very gates of hell cannot stop the spread of God's glory. Church, that's what it looks like to be in the promised land, to not settle to not surrender to the worldliness, but to have success as a follower of Jesus Christ. It means you lose your life. That's victory in Christ, to lose your life for the sake 
of the gospel. Would you join me in asking by God's grace for us to begin to lay down our life for the sake of the gospel? That's uncomfortable. It means being vulnerable. It means being transparent. It means sharing burdens. It means a lot of the things and different things to different people. Pray with me if you would.